We actually have women in our plant that are going through cancer treatment. One of my coworkers that I'm close to, she started right before our strike, she started cancer treatment and she was denied many appointments. Imagine she's going to accumulate her points and eventually get fired. Welcome to the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. That's Christina Lujan of BCTGM Local 37 talking to the Checkout Podcast about the working conditions that led to the strike at Rich Products. It inspires other uh, workers at other Starbucks all over the country to say, why not us? And yeah. that, of course, is the reason why the company put so much into fighting the Buffalo situation. On America's Workforce Radio, Labor lawyer Joyce Goldstein discussed the NLRB's role in efforts by Starbucks workers to organize. Lewick did not have to die. And yes, he was a SEIU 10 to 1 union member brother. And from Workweek Radio, SEIU local 1021 members reflect on the avoidable death of Ludwig Leota and what to do to prevent similar situations in the future. So long ago, you never ever said the word capitalism. You just said, you said democracy, <laughs> which may or may not be uh, capitalism, but may or may not be democracy. But only recently have people begun to even ask what it is. Workers Beat brings us a brief but illuminating overview of Emil Burns' history of capitalism. Discrimination does exist in the labor movement. It is true that organized labor has taken significant steps to remove the yoke of discrimination from its own body. But in spite of this, some unions governed by the racist ethos have contributed to the degraded economic status of the Negro. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. on the Labor History Today podcast from his historic, newly digitized 1961 speech to the AFL-CIO convention at the Americana Hotel in Miami Beach, Florida. I'm Chris Garlock, and that's all ahead on today's selection of highlights from the nearly 150 shows in the Labor Radio Podcast Network. If you like what you hear, and we hope you do, you'll find links to the entire programs in our show notes. And of course, you can find all 150 shows on our website at laborradionetwork.org. Here's the show. Welcome to the checkout, Christina Lujan, BCTGM Local 37, striking John Donair Foods in Los Angeles. Thanks so much for making time, taking a break from the picket line to talk with us. Thank you. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak on behalf of myself and my coworkers. So tell us, let's start. How long have you folks been on strike? We've been on strike since November 3rd, over two months now. Right on. So what type of products do you folks make? Where, where are they found? We make ice cream cakes for companies like Coatstone, Bonds, Walmart. Those are basically our higher, where we have the most products in. Um, Baskin like, Robbins also. You each make 6,240 ice cream cakes per day mm-hmm. per shift if you're yeah. working an eight-hour shift. Have you had to work a lot of overtime? 
Yes. And over time, they let you know five minutes before your shift is over. Like, you're not even prepared to stay for overtime. And you have to stay. It's mandatory. You, there's no option. They don't ask you, can you stay? It's you have to stay. And you don't know the amount of time. It could be 20 minutes only. It could be three hours. It could be two hours. You never know the amount of time you're going to stay overtime. Yeah, that's insane. What are the demands of you and other striking workers at the John Dunn Air Facility? Like I said, we were asking for higher wages, which is we're only asking for a dollar. Our contract is three years. It lasts three years. So we were asking for a dollar for each year, a total of $3 after three years raise. And our, for our insurance to remain the same plan that we actually have now not to be because they want to hire it. What we pay out of pocket. Are you guys asking for any notice on overtime to actually be able to yes, plan? For them to noti- notify us on overtime before five minutes of our shift being over. And, and also we're demanding for more sick days because we only have three sick days, which is what the, we have it because the state made it mandatory or else we wouldn't even have three sick days. We would have none. And we're on a, we're on a seven point program. We're allowed from one year, through one year, we're allowed seven points. After seven points, you get one point for missing work. You get half a point for getting to work late. And you get half a point if, say, I ask for permission because I have a 9 a.m. doctor's appointment and I need to leave at 8.30. And the permission is denied. I can still leave to my appointment, but I'll have to leave with half a point. So that's why we're demanding for more sick pay and and then for me for them to be more lenient on us because we can't go out to doctor's appointments. We actually have women in our plant that are going through cancer treatments. One of my coworkers that I'm close to, she started right before our strike, she started cancer treatment and she was denied many appointments. And that's something that it's a need, it's not because you want to. And she was denied all these appointments. Imagine she's going to accumulate her points and eventually get fired. That's so inhumane. My wife survived cancer. She went through cancer treatment. So, A, I couldn't imagine her having to make 6,000 cakes per day. And then when she needs to go to chemo, her boss telling her she can't. And that's life and death stuff. Yes, yes. It's not like if you want to. I was surprised at the fact that something that brings so much joy to people. Like I only ate ice cream cakes on my birthday when I was a kid. It's like, you think of ice cream cakes and it's like the ultimate joyful food experience that you folks are, are having to undergo this type of treatment and having to strike in order to get treated better, get paid better at work. What can our folks do to help you? The main thing is this, making it public to show the greed of this corporation. Maybe they have some shame and, and give us a better contract. That's Mainly what we're focusing on right now to get it out publicly, make it public so that all United States knows the greed of this company. Have they replaced you with temps or they've moved production elsewhere? How are they reacting to this? They're starting to bring in more temps, yes, to replace us. Yeah, I think the uh, operative word for that is scab. One, thank you for how hard you work and how much skill you put into crafting America's favorite dessert, at least I think it is. Thank you. And thanks for making time from what you're doing to be on our show. Do you have any closing thoughts, anything else you'd like to share with our audience? Just that this corporation, the worth of this corporation is 
seven and a half million billion dollars. So I think that they they can't afford to pay us what we're asking for. It shows their grief that just that we're not gonna give up for everybody to support us in any way that they can. We're gonna fight till we get something that's better. We're not gonna stop fighting and just support us in any way that you guys can. Awesome. Thank you so much, Christina. Best of luck to everything that you and your uh, comrades are fighting for out there. And Thank you. Um, Thank we're you. with you. Thank you. Welcome to the America's Workforce Radio Podcast. Here's your host, Ed Flash Ferens. U.S. Supreme Court ruling Biden's vaccine mandate one win. One loss and our labor lawyer, Joyce Goldstein on the NLRB and what has changed at that agency. Joyce Goldstein and Associates website is JoyceGoldsteinLaw.com located in Cleveland, Ohio. And she is my expert and your expert on the National Labor Relations Board. I tell you, she gets uh, news from them each and every day. Joyce, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much. It's great to be back. Last time. You and I talked of Starbucks started organizing, and uh, that was in Buffalo, New York. Since that time, I'm reading about a dozen of them. One in downtown Cleveland is organizing. I have to ask you, what did the National Labor Relations Board do to make that happen? Sure. So part of what I think is attributable to is legal, and part of it then becomes more political in in a more general sense. But on the legal side of it, I think that from the NLRB standpoint, there are probably two different ways to think about what the NLRB did that facilitated the Starbucks organizing. On the one hand, there were procedural issues. And then on the other hand, there were substantive issues. And on the procedural side, the main thing that the NLRB has been doing is that they're speeding up election cases. If unions file election petitions with the NLRB when they're strong. They only need 30% of the workers to support an election petition, but to actually win an election, they need 50% plus one. So the longer an employer can delay who wants to, the greater chance they have of defeating a union campaign. When a union comes down, they try to, most unions come in with a super majority of support, not just the 30% that they need because they know that they're going to lose support over time, typically. And so what the NLRB has been doing more recently is under the Biden administration is that they're not granting extensions. They're requiring parties to commit to their position. They're holding quick hearings if necessary. They're deferring issues to uh, disputed issues to after an election if they can push that down um, until later in the proceedings and go forward and hold the election, even if it might mean impounding ballots or holding them, uh, but at least having the election when there hasn't been the opportunity to destroy the majority support. They're not allowing deadlines to be blown. So it's a a lot of stuff that really, I think, contributes to getting the elections happening quicker so that the majority isn't decimated in the time. And then on the substantive side with the Starbucks case in Buffalo, the issue there was that the 
the union had support in individual stores and wanted to have elections in individual stores. And Starbucks, on the other hand, said that the only appropriate unit was all the Starbucks in the entire Buffalo area. And the union hadn't organized in all of the Starbucks in the whole area so that if they had to have an election among all of the stores, then, again, they probably would have lost because they wouldn't have had support. But they did have support in the individual stores. And so on the substantive side of the law, uh, the NLRB came in and said, no, having the single store elections and separate bargaining units was appropriate. And they went forward and ordered the elections that way. And then because the union won, at least in one of the stores, and arguably in two of the stores uh, that it inspires other uh, workers at other Starbucks all over the country to say, why not us? And that of course is the reason why the company put so much into fighting the Buffalo situation because mm-hmm. I think everybody understands that once it starts. Yeah, yeah, it's like dominoes, and that's what they were afraid of, and, and it's happening as we speak. I knew I'd get a good answer from you on that Love talking to her. Joyce Goldstein, been practicing law for over four decades. Joyce Goldstein and Associates, that's it for another edition of America's Workforce. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. Above my bed, you know, I hitchhiked from Chicago, and a man walked up and said, This is a union town, a union town. This is Steve Zeltzer with Work Week. This, this week we will hear about a rally to commemorate the life of SEIU K21 healthcare worker Ludwig Liotta, who did not have to die from COVID 19, and the privatization and outsourcing of public service jobs in San Francisco. We previously interviewed him in May of 2020 about his vulnerable health condition and the coercion and threats by San Francisco city managers to force him back to work despite the possible death from COVID. Following this interview, he was forced to go back to work to the homeless shelter and contracted COVID from which he died from. We also hear from a rally held at SEIU 1021 offices about this and the failure to have PPE N95 masks and the outsourcing and privatization of public jobs to privately run but publicly funded nonprofits. Now to the segment. We're here today at the SEIU offices in San Francisco. My name is Steve Zeltzer uh, with the United Front Committee for Labor Party and we're here today to remember Ludwig Liotta and also to fight against privatization, outsourcing and attacks on democracy in the union. So now I want to introduce Cheryl Thornton, his vice president of the uh, Community Health Center chapter, SEIU 1021, and also was working with uh, Ludwig Liotta and, and fighting for his life uh, so he could survive. Welcome, Cheryl. Since the pandemic, and when this latest surge, they just sent out, Grant Colfax just sent out another memo saying, by all many means, almost any means necessary, if you can let your workers telecommute, let them telecommute. Well, I was on the telecommuting committee trying to get this through for Ludwig. And I fought, we fought and fought and fought, and then they just put it on hold, and it's not off hold. And I'm here to tell you there's no fairness in public health, how these decisions for essential workers, how you're deemed an essential worker, how it's decided if you could telecommute or not. It's all left up to a, a manager. 
who may not even have the skill set to assess medical necessity. And Ludwig had a medical necessity. And he told us time and time again, I'm so afraid of dying. He told all of us that in the workplace, all of us, from the medical director on down. I mean, it's almost as if we're we're just we're just replaceable. And the other thing I want to say is about the labor movement. One of the things in the labor movement that we fought, that was fought for is better health and safety, better working conditions, better paying jobs, benefited jobs. All of this right now, it's being eroded through this pandemic. Now on top of the labor movement, you know, we had the Civil Rights Act. And we brought this in because it was about economics in marginalized communities like African American, where they didn't have good jobs, where there were no benefits, healthcare benefits, so people didn't have access to healthcare. And so this was all done, but what I see is it's being undone now. And this is the new, really, Jim Crow. This COVID, because it's deciding that people of color like Ludwig or myself, we're not um, worthy of being in a safe, a safe work environment. We're not worthy as essential workers, even though we can do our jobs at home, we're not allowed to. We're not allowed to. Where's the fairness? And I brought this to my union and they haven't, as far as I, myself have seen. I haven't seen any bargaining. I haven't had any communication. In fact, when Ludwig died, they didn't even come to the clinic to like reach out to us. The leadership of SEIU 10 to 1, they never reached out. And we lost a brother and a damn good worker. It really breaks my heart. So the last thing I wanna say today is about this privatization. This has gotta stop. People gotta know what's going on. We gotta, people gotta realize that all this temporary exempt hiring is a process that they've come up with to eliminate, I feel, permanent civil service workers. Because they don't wanna pay the retirement benefits when we retire. If I'm a low wage worker, who is a pseudo city worker, because you're not a real one, and I have to put a 401k, I can only put $10 a month and they match that, where am I gonna be when I retire? So this outsourcing has to stop. We need to try to close the uh, wealth gap in this city, because it's, it's huge and it's not fair. And I hope that my union, SEIU 10 to 1, hears me about getting better working conditions for their essential workers. Because yes, Ludwig did not have to die. And yes, he was a SEIU 10 to 1 union member brother. The virus is spreading. I'm under lockdown. They got a quarantine on the whole town. No face masks left from coast to coast. Running out of things folks want the most. As everyone stays this is Gene Lance on the Workers Beat Extra. Not so long ago, you never ever said the word capitalism. You never said socialism either, but you you didn't say capitalism at all. You just said, you said democracy, <laughs> which 
may or not, may not be uh, capitalist and may or may not be democracy. We didn't say capitalist. We didn't say the word for a long time. And only recently have people begun to even ask what it is. How did it start? In a book by Emile Burns, he says, quote, The growth of the capitalist class also meant the growth of new forms of class struggle. The capitalists had to engage in a struggle against the monarchy and the feudal lords. Here's how it came about in Britain. And I'm still quoting Emile Burns. In Britain, where the stage was reached far earlier than in other countries, the struggle of the growing capitalist class against taxation and restrictions reached a high point in the middle of the 17th century. These restrictions were holding back the expansion of the capitalist form of production. The capitalists tried to get them removed by peaceful means, by petitions to the king, by refusing to pay taxes and so on, but nothing far-reaching could be won against the machinery of the state. Therefore, the capitalists eventually had to meet force with force. They had to rouse the people against the king, against arbitrary taxation and trade restrictions, against the arrests and penalties imposed by the king's judges for all attempts to break through the feudal barriers. In other words, the capitalists had to organize an armed revolution to lead the people to rise in arms against the king and the old forms of oppression, to, to defeat the former rulers by military means. Only after this had been done was it possible for the capitalist class, or the, the capitalist guys, to become the ruling class, to break down all barriers to the development of capitalism, and to make the laws that they needed for this. The armed uprising that Emil Burns refers to is the successful fight led by Oliver Cromwell against King Charles I. Emil Burns says that a second phase occurred in 1688, which by and large completed the capitalist revolution, even though it remained imperfect because royalty and hereditary landowners were never completely removed from power. The capitalist-led revolution in the American colonies did away with royalty a hundred years after British capitalists came to power. But it is the French Revolution of 1789 that provides the clearest example of transfer of power from the kings and the feudal nobles to the capitalist class. But capitalism was not a bad thing. Like a lot of young radicals like to say that it's always been horrible. That's not true. You have to remember that it replaced the kings and the aristocracy. We have always struggled against the capitalist class in recent years, but we acknowledge that capitalism at its inception was a considerable advance over the feudalism that it replaced. Capitalism freed the serfs. It raised production and trade to levels that would not have been possible under the personal rule of petty kings and nobles. It allowed for and encouraged technical advances. It allowed for and encouraged schooling for working people. Because the capitalists required good workers, they raised education levels in the general population. Because capitalism 
could outproduce all former economic systems, it spread rapidly, one way or another, throughout the world. England, as the first great capitalist power, soon ruled much of the world. That's because they could outproduce them. They could make more wealth in their system than the kings and petty tyrants could in other systems. So they tended to take over other countries all over the world. By the beginning of the 20th century, virtually every nation fell under the rule of their capitalist class. Having no other planets to conquer, the capitalist class then fell into a long-term general crisis. The only way that one group of capitalists could expand was at the expense of another. The age of imperialism, drastic economic crises, environmental disasters, and world wars that killed millions of young people would characterize the rest of their rule. So that's my short history of the way things have been since the capitalist guys, the owners, the bosses, since they took over. This is Gene Lance on the Workers Beat Extra. That is why the labor hater and labor baiter is virtually always a twin-headed creature spewing anti-Negro epithets from one mouth and anti-labor propaganda from the other mouth. Hi, and welcome to Labor History Today. Tomorrow is Martin Luther King Jr. Day. On December 11th, 1961, Dr. King spoke at the AFL-CIO's fourth constitutional convention at the Americana Hotel in Miami Beach, Florida. King encouraged the AFL-CIO to help erase all vestiges of racial discrimination in American life, including labor unions, as well as to provide financial support to the civil rights movement. Now, you can find many of King's speeches on YouTube, but not this one. Until recently, it was only preserved on a reel of tape in the Meany Labor Archives at the University of Maryland College Park. But for this year's AFL-CIO Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Civil and Human Rights Conference, which started today and runs online through tomorrow, the AFL-CIO and the archives digitized the speech and gave us permission to bring it to you here on Labor History Today. What was the context for his quiet but powerful challenge to an almost certainly all-white roomful of American labor leaders? And what does that speech say to us now, 61 years later? Though, of course, I sat down for a brief chat with labor historian Joe McCartan, who, as it turns out, had also never heard this speech before and as you'll hear, was blown away as well. Discrimination does exist in the labor movement. It is true that organized labor has taken significant steps to remove the yoke of discrimination from its own body. But in spite of this, some unions governed by the racist ethos 
have contributed to the degraded economic status of the Negro. All right. So let me get you, first of all, just to uh, respond to, to hearing the speech, I think for the first time, right? It's the first time I actually heard his voice, Chris. I read the transcript of this speech before, but hearing his voice um, and the way he uh, worked the crowd, I think that's one thing that doesn't come across in a transcript. It just, um, it blew me away to, to think about this guy who's really then just 32 years old, you know, and, and um, he, it's such a skilled job of coalition building. Um, and, and a really difficult space with with a movement that had a history that was checkered on, on race. Uh, but, um, you know, to, to reach out to that movement, to look for common ground, to not overlook the um, problems that existed, and to speak to all of that with, with just tremendous um, grace and precision about you know, we often hear the term beloved community invoked when we talk about what King was trying to build, but here you see it in action. How do you, how do you construct a beloved community uh, around a set of shared ideals um, with people who weren't always on your side? Um, uh, and there were some people in that room that still were from or led unions that continued to bar uh, African-American members. And so for King to, to, you know, speak to the better angels of the labor movement's history and to want to build on that, not shrinking away with, from the problems that existed and to do it in the way he does in this speech, I think is remarkable. Joe McCartan, wonderful. Thank you so much. That's it for this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, our roundup of highlights from just a few of the nearly 150 labor radio shows and podcasts that make up the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Remember, we've got links to the shows you heard today in the show notes for this podcast. You'll find all the network shows at laborradionetwork.org, and you can also find them by using the hashtag LaborRadioPod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly was edited by Patrick Dixon and Mel Smith. I produce the show, and our social media guru, as always, is Mr. Harold Phillips. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Labor Radio Net. Find out more on our website at laborradionetwork.org. For Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this is Chris Garlock. Stay active and stay tuned to your local labor radio podcast show.